Hi, Adrian. Welcome to the MVP Engineer podcast. Uh, I was excited to talk to you. You do some fractional CTO work as well and wanted to talk a little bit about DevOps and uh, some other topics. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and yeah, tell us a little bit about what you've been up to the last couple of years. Uh, thanks, uh, first of all, for having me, William. Um, so yes, uh, I'm there for already uh, 24 years in professional business when it comes to software development and around 15 years of being responsible. So I myself uh, am, in, uh, am uh, let's say, a small business entrepreneur, but we are working with uh, quite uh, large companies, medium-sized to large companies in the European, especially German area. And uh, I'm doing a lot of, uh, let's say, I, I help a lot of fellow CTOs um, out there with my knowledge I gathered over the time, you know, um, the mistakes I made, I made a lot of mistakes. So I'm talking a lot about those mistakes and insights on LinkedIn and videos and newsletter, all this kind of stuff. And I'm uh, really looking forward to help others to not fall into the traps I've, I felt in the past. And um, I have, let's say, various of topics uh, I'm, I'm, I'm about, it's starting from cloud, cloud native, DevOps, um, engineering culture, culture and tech, all this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of stuff interesting me. And yes, um, this is actually the reason why I'm here today, um, talking about awesome. those things. Exactly. This is me. Yeah, I love it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious a little bit about the, the localization into, into Berlin and stuff. But um, let's start with some cloud native stuff. Did I see that you're uh, more uh, attuned to Azure and uh, working with Azure a bunch? And not so much. Uh, I'm actually, um, I, I was AWS person uh, for right. quite a while, um, but we moved uh, since that was the time when Kubernetes was a big thing, you know, some years ago, and everyone was moving to one of the big cloud providers. Uh, but uh, I, I told that already. Oh, you're doing the DigitalOcean thing. I'm di it. doing DigitalOcean. So actually, awesome. I'm a DigitalOcean business partner already. Awesome. And we, because we figured out that the context of small to medium-sized business and startups doesn't fit very well to the public cloud providers. So many people are running into burnouts there on some point in time. Give me, give me the pitch for, give me the pitch for DigitalOcean because I've I've done some work on DigitalOcean and I might be a little bit contrarian here, um, at least from your perspective. Yes. So I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear why, why you want people or just just what DigitalOcean has to offer. Um, so basically, and the disclaimer here is also that Adrian makes a little bit of kickback, I think, because you're working with them directly. I think. Yes, uh, so yeah, I would say so. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's, that's fine. Totally that's fine. fine. I just want to I just want to give the give the disclaimer. But tell us tell us why we should use DigitalOcean because I I don't like it honestly. So tell me tell me what it's I good, missed. It's good to know because then then I have some feedback as well. So DigitalOcean um, is basically the platform for small businesses because it provides. Uh, services like, for example, the app platform, which is basically a platform where you um, basically be able to reduce stress for de for your development team, especially when you want to go DevOps for small businesses, where you most often don't have ops personnel. So you don't have apps pe uh, ops people. And sometimes you have seniors doing some kind of Linux stuff, for example, but that's not enough to run Kubernetes, to do IIM, uh, IIM uh, on, on AWS and all this kind of stuff. And um, they have a software service, which is called the app platform. And this is basically a game changer for small to medium-sized businesses, and especially on startups, because you can basically run there everything from Jamstacks to larger microservice applications, focused entirely on development. So this is basically what I like as a CTO 
So I'm CTO myself with all our products. We have that there as well uh, because we can focus on creating value instead of hustling around with Kubernetes and all this kind of orchestrators out there. Interesting. What's the gem stack? What's the, what's that stack you mentioned? Um, it's the app platform, actually. So this is basically a platform as a service environment. So you can, of course, run uh, Kubernetes and droplets as well, but uh, we don't use them. So uh, we've basically gone over this was the reason why we've gone away from AWS as well, because it was too complicated for us, our products and our clients. And yeah. uh, on DigitalOcean, it is like uh, you can really be even a junior developer and working end-to-end -end in the DevOps area from code, check-in, pipelining, even up to the networking part, because the networking part is so easy down that you can actually basically, you, you don't need to be an, apps, uh, an ops professional to actually uh, yeah. operate that. This is great. All right. Interesting. Um, so you're saying without a DevOps team, you could you could deploy and, and run your run your app and your website. Um, I don't know. For me, it would have to be like Apple and just work, right? I ran into a couple of like what I saw were relatively simple bugs that like made it impossible to do the deploy. And then when I looked into the configuration and say, hey, let me do this, this, and this, uh, I forget the specifics, but I assumed it was like GCP. I do a lot of work on GCP. Mm -hmm. So I said, hey, I could change this configuration or I could open up this port on the firewall or whatever, or do this thing. And uh, as long as I do that, then we can check the problem and fix the problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't have the configuration options. And then it still didn't work. And you get really frustrated because you're like, I could fix this. I know the problem, but it's not allowing me to do it. And again, like I can see why there's value if it just works, right? But in general, I'm doing like more advanced deploys. Mm -hmm. And the reason I like GCP is GCP has almost all the options that AWS has with more simplicity. I don't know how familiar you are with GCP, but I agree that AWS is too complicated. And what, what I mean by complicated is there's three ways to do the same thing, right? Like there, largely there's no preferred way to do one thing. And when there's no preferred way, or there's like slightly preferred, like 20% better, it becomes really muddled. And you talk to four different developers, they do it the way that they did it last time, not the preferred way. Mm -hmm. And when you do it the preferred way, everybody knows what you're going to do because it's the easy, best thing to do, right? So I agree DigitalOcean has less options. I'm kind of thinking the way that you pitched it, it's a little bit like Heroku. Are you familiar with Heroku? Yes, it is. Uh, I'm very familiar with Heroku and even uh, DigitalOcean is working with some stack with of Heroku on the app platform. Yeah. So in Heroku, you have a lot of Rails and Ruby uh, uh, developments and it makes it really easy to deploy. The I, And from my experience with Heroku, it was really easy. Not much configuration, not much to do. The problem that we see with Heroku is you deploy it real quick mm -hmm. and uh, it works real well. And then uh, you start scaling and then the costs skyrocket, right? It's just like impossible to keep it running when you have a million users because Heroku is just so expensive once you start mm -hmm. to get to scale, right? So I don't know if DigitalOcean has that problem. It's probably more expensive than GCP because GCP is so fine grained in like exactly how it bills that uh, the other ones just have to be more expensive. But there's always, you know, if you're getting ease of use and it works for you, I, you know, there's there's a reason to go for it. So 
Um, give me a quick uh, compare and contrast from your perspective on uh, Heroku and DigitalOcean. So um, I would like to stick quickly with uh, DigitalOcean because there are some specific aspects, aspects yeah. to that. And this is, for example, uh, so first of all, you have the idea of um, that you actually have this one package, you know, you just have your, let's say, um, your Docker Compose file, you convert it into an app spec file, and you're good to go. So um, everything else is handled for you, like um, the load balancer, like the domain thing, the networking, the repositories, even up to metrics, networking, SLA, and all this kind of stuff. So this is all matched for you, except WAF at the moment. So WAF is not an option. So you need to do that by yourself. This is a little bit pain at the moment, but it will be fixed as well in the future. And the, the, for example, so when you start with your app, so in, in, the, in the beginning, you're always quite small. Then uh, you have, let's say, um, those containers they're running. So you basically build, you know, um, build on the go. Uh, so basically pay on the go. And the, the, the point is in the beginning, it's quite cheap. And of course, as, as soon as you scale, it's get a little bit more expensive than you would have run it on your own. But you need to, you know, the total cost of ownership, this is quite, um, you know, important there. So first of all, you don't have ops personnel, so you don't need to hire someone who's doing that for you. This is a big thing for small companies, especially starting companies. Because uh, when I look back, when, I, when we had our first, uh, let's say, um, Consultants for AWS, it got expensive uh, pretty quick, and you don't have yep. that there. This is the first point. And the other point is uh, metrics and logging. When you take something like Datadog, you can basically uh, create an intake and you know push everything with a sidecar container and other solutions to Datadog. You can do that in the app platform as well. They basically have a feature for that, but you already have that in the platform without paying anything extra. So you have metrics, you have alerts, Slack alerts, you have uh, logging, all this kind of stuff. Of course, this is not as good as Datadog, for example, but especially for the beginning, it's enough. And especially the metrics are enough. And this is what I, I think, especially for smaller companies in the beginning, this is a very good solution. But I have to say, I don't say that you should scale with that infinitely, even if a platform does provide auto-scaling as well. It might make sense to, on some point, thinking about the Kubernetes cluster with some kind of, platform as a service middleware solution on top of that. Yeah. yeah. So you talk a lot about culture as well and, and specifically like early stage SMB uh, tech culture. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about ownership a little bit. And uh, we, we talked a little about uh, developer responsibility from the end to end and, and ensuring quality delivery and just ownership in general. So, so talk to me about your perspective on that. How do you, how do you uh, frame that in, in the discussion, in the broader discussion and just... So I think engineering culture or culture and tech in general is a very important aspect. Many people of us miss because uh, when you follow discussions on LinkedIn, wherever, in some, social, uh, some form of social media, uh, most people focus on the operational and tactical aspects of technology. So, for example, should you go with uh, continuous delivery? Should you go with trunk-based development or GitFlow or whatever? So people focus on the operational parts, but not so much on the actual cultural parts. So when we take a look at, uh, for example, we've mentioned DevOps already, which is actually a culture. Um, we just see there we have the end-to-end -end responsibility. So I'm a big fan of having software developers there, which thinking from, from the beginning, so basically from the ticket to the deployment, and basically, let's say, running the application, um, 
this whole responsibility leads to a form of ownership when you practice it right. And if you foster that as a tech lead, as a CTO, as a VP of engineering, from day one on into your teams, then you will get a lot of response, you know, let's say responsibility and resulting of that, a lot of maturity as well. And as soon as you have those both things in place, um, you can even, you know, um, think about, let's say, rapid development with trunk-based development, where you even reduce, for example, the pull requests and code reviews. This is what I've wrote a, a, a lot and often about. We had some live streams about that as well. And those are very important aspects. So the more you let the people do, the more responsibility you uh, basically want want from them, the more mature they, they become. And, um, you know, the, the more value you create in your process because you can become you know, faster with what you do, you have a better progress and progress is the foundation of happiness in the end. Well, because... you're, talking, you're talking a little bit about like employee development, right? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, giving more responsibility. Um, for me, a lot of the, like, for me, sometimes it's not giving more responsibility, but giving too much and mm -hmm. then them not having the ownership to take it to the finish, right? So, one of the one of the core tenets of my company is over the finish line. If it's not completed and can show that it's working and ready to hand off to the next player or ready to hand off to the next guy, like why like it's just not ready yet. So how do you foster that kind of ownership where it's not just send the pull request but prove that it's done? Send me a loom video of the feature complete working right mm -hmm. uh, we're in mvps and in, in early stage software we don't have a whole separate qa department like we're all qaing together and the developer has to make sure that it's yeah. completed right so how do you foster that culture in the in the in the company to say hey over the finish line mm -hmm. this is very important to understand so i'm my, my focus is from the CTO side. So this is what I've done most of my time. And I think it's, it's um, first of all, the business already must be aligned and connected. And this is, you know, the, the task of the CTO. And then comes the VP of engineering that, who, who needs to take this strategy and, and, you know, drill it down into tactical and operational aspects as well, which means that we cannot have a rigid business and an agile development and then, you know, force the people to, you know, um, you know, have an agile development without, you know, proper briefings and then, you know, uh, get it out before deadline. So this is the first thing. So culture starts from the top and is going down to the bottom, uh, not bottom up. So this is very important to not uh, to, to give the developers the sense of control. This is the first thing. And then, of course, um, it's um, we're talking a lot about con the idea of continuous delivery to stay in process and progress. And um, I think this is very important, a very important cultural aspect as well. So, of course, the, the people and the developer need to, um, you know, cultivate their sense of ownership. And this, this, is, this is very important. And they need to have some form of responsibility. But responsibility and accountability are two, two different parts. So as long as they develop their stuff in a responsible way and they talk about that often, communicate often, you know, to your team lead, about what you're doing. So even if you have not finished 100% of the task, deliver what you already have and communicate this. This will reduce yep. stress. This is what you need to do in order to reduce stress because everyone up to the business area, 
business section will know then we are in progress. And that's okay if it takes a week longer as soon as long as we are in progress, because most people make the severe, let's say it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big problem, that they actually have 0%, you know, uh, in the perspective of business people, have 0% on the, on the deadline and saying we are soon ready, but no one can see something. So you need to yeah. deliver what you have on this day. Exactly. Transparency, because I, I hear that so many times the developers are just like, yeah, we're close, we're close, we're close. Nobody wants to show off shitty work. Yeah. And I hate it. I hate it. Show off your shitty work. Everyone works. Everyone knows what shitty works looks like. Everyone knows. Yeah. What everyone knows that progress is progress. But they're ashamed of themselves. They're ashamed that it's not perfect. But then they run into the stressful situation where they basically deliver no, nothing. Nothing is better than worse. The business owner is stressed. The tech lead is stressed. And the developer is stressed. Everybody's stressed. Mm -hmm. But if the developer shows the tech lead, this is where we're at. The tech lead can say, hey, try this, try this, try this. Then, then the developer gets unblocked. The business owner knows that the tech lead's on it. Mm -hmm. And everybody's stress is reduced. Exactly. That's, that's, how that's do we, great to hear. <laughs> okay. How do, we, uh, how do we reverse all of human nature? Help me with this one, Adrian. How, can, can you repeat that? I don't really understand the question. How, how do we get rid of shame? <laughs> ah, okay. Okay. Blameless environment and uh, be shamed. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's... Um... No, but it's, not, it's, not, it's more than blameless environment because you can have blameless environment and people still feel shame that their, sh their code is shitty, right? I mean, I was I was trying to Google and Google Google has a does a really good job of a blameless culture, really good job, yeah. um, especially in in certain teams. And uh, I would say I would say um, first of all, I prefer um, when when you don't have any form of synchronous um, sorry, asynchronous code reviews because um, it is harder to push code reviews asynchronous yeah one really pair, 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 yeah yeah pair programming or something like that the, the reason being is exactly what you just say I, I want my developers to talk to me or some team leaders uh, about their ongoing process what was pro what was problematic what what was not problematic for example so where they start Adrian, where you're, they in, you're in berlin where are your developers i'm not in berlin i'm, I'm basically southern germany oh Okay, that's Berlin, <laughs> at least to me. Okay. Sorry, I don't, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but if you flew to New York City from Berlin, you live in Berlin, right? Okay, um, yeah, okay, okay. No, no, I'm, I'm actually living in southern Germany. And awesome. um, my, my developers, are, the half of them are basically in Germany or remote, and the other yeah. half is in Europe or remote. Understood. Well, here's the problem with synchronous code reviews for me. Mm -hmm. My developers are in Africa. Mm-hmm. Okay, this and is, it's, this is a it's so tough. It's so tough to try and get the time zones to work. Everything in the company and and my and my team leads are in, in India, so they're just on completely different time zones, completely different sides of the world. And this is why I do what I call geography arbitrage. It's just mm -hmm. you, you find the people that are not living in Berlin. Berlin's an expensive city, and Germany's an expensive country, right? So it's better. It's better than New York City or Miami, but finding developers there is is a harder task. Than, than finding cheap quality developers in Africa, India, uh, Romania, right? So the synchronous thing is so tough, but it is it is still tough to to get the blameless and to get the to get the transparency with asynchronous. It's just it's just a very difficult problem. 
Um, so let's see. Fostering maturity in, uh, in the development culture. Uh, do you want to talk about junior developers and, and leveling them up or, or just maturing the, the entire org? What do, you, what do you have to say about, about that? Um, those, those topics are actually quite connected to each other. Okay. So maybe I start with, uh, with, a, so with, a, with a junior to senior thing. Um, so um, I have a very special idea of um, what to focus on. And this okay. is the average developer, which which you could mean is the intermediate or you know mid level developer. And the reason being for that is that the junior developers need a realistic target, and the senior developers need someone to actually mentor. So, and this is my idea of creating a healthy environment, a beneficial, supportive environment, where, um, for example, those problems we've mentioned in the question before wouldn't actually take part. And the idea is that. When you, when you join these days a junior develop, as a junior developer in an organization, it's quite tough. You know, there are so, so many, let's say, technologies these days, so many principles to, to, you need to follow, so many. Maybe you're in an environment which is highly, you know, into some complicated DevOps things and stuff like that. There's so much to learn. And you need to have something, um, let's say, which is not senior as your goal because there are so many years in between you and uh, in between now and then that uh, intermediate spot is, is, is the right thing. And Jonathan Schultz from LinkedIn uh, had, had a very good uh, terminology for that. And that this is basically the uh, culture requirements. So you set up culture requirements for the average developer. So this is how I coined it. And um, when you have that, the, the, let's say you know that this is what you actually expect. This is the, the, the workhorse of your team, you know, is the average developer. A junior developer does have a chance to get one or two years to this position. And the senior developers have the basically the task to foster this, this this entire process to get this done. And 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 um, the the good thing about that is when you have those uh, this in place, then you basically can split your teams. You can scale with that because the amount of senior developers per team can be lower because you focus that the average developer is fostered in a way, in, empowered in a way. Um, enabled in a way to work on this own on most of the task. So you don't need to overly rely on senior developers. Now, this is the first thing I would um, I would implement um, as formal for culture so that you, it's not about pay grades. I don't, I'm not talking about pay grades. In most small businesses, you don't have that anyway. But I'm talking about the idea of what is a junior, what is a mid-level, and what is a senior. And for the junior, the senior is not the goal. It is the mid-level. And this is important to understand. I hear you. Um, yeah. The So what's the roadmap for this mid-level average engineer? Like, I understand that there's the different levels and that you want to focus on the mid-level guy mm -hmm. uh, because that's going to be the, that's going to be the like majority, the majority where we're getting the biggest bang for our buck. Right. But like, what's the roadmap for that guy? How do we level him up? And what does that mean? Do, are we going mid to senior or, or what, what do we, what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. uh, I made a series about that last week. So there are three big posts and a large article about that. Um, but yeah. in, in general, it is um, so the average developer should be by definition able to do most, let's say, tasks which are, let's say, seen as, let's, as default in his uh, team, um, should be able to do them on his or her, herself, basically. Yeah, you sure. can say that. And um there's there's only let's say some specific parts like um, more complex architecture, uh, let's say um, interdisciplinary things where 
the average developer then is consulting a senior, you know, and this is actually what you try to achieve. So you have a set of requirements which you need, for example, if you are working in a front-end related team, you should be able to uh, use your React Slack with Next.js fully. You should be able to configure it. You should be able to deploy it. You should be able to uh, understand the pipelining. You should be able to fix bugs, um, you know, solve outages and all this kind of stuff. So this is something you can, you know, create some requirements well, for your context. Be, that's going to be like the goals of the mid-level, but like... Yeah. What do you what do you tell them to get from from where they are to where they have to be? I mean, I guess it depends on the on the developer, but like, can you give us an example and and like talk about some of the advice that you would give to to one of those to one of to, those to a developers? junior then or to a oh mid sure, I mean you're you're saying that the average guy or the average uh, the mm -hmm. average mid level is the one that we want to be focusing most of our attention on. It's about it's about like teaching to the middle of the class, right? right. Um, so pick what what's an average problem that the average developer has and how do you how do you solve it for them or how do you level them up on that specific skill set okay um so so we could just take for example something which goes beyond coding so i sure. expect this uh, average developer to be you know proficient with coding everything inside his ide but as soon as sure. probably deploys for example and there is a problem let's take npm you know we haven't built locally it's working and you push it to your pipeline and there it's not working because there is a problem with package node version or something like that you know sure i would expect uh, Those are average developer, exactly i would expect an average developer to try to fix that you know and see that as some part of more let's say more more seniority more seniority thing actually to solve but try it on some point we sometimes say just take 15 minutes if you don't get it done ask someone else because otherwise it gets too expensive but try it you know try to solve it and when you don't get it ask someone because this is you know the the let's say the the responsibility and the ownership and the maturity again is you yep. need to know when to ask and consult someone and not covering up that you're sitting there for 3 hours not capable of solving that. So try it for yourself yeah. and tell someone I wasn't able to tell me how and then learn it and make something. So I out agree. Of I agree with that. I agree with that kind of cultural statement of try first, right? The way that I would talk about it or, or I would take it to the next level and say, don't ask questions. Like I tell my team, don't ask me questions. I don't want questions from you. What I want from you is a task that you couldn't solve and everything that you did to try to solve it. Mm -hmm. Right. And by doing that, I can say, Oh, they tried this, this, and this, and this is what I would have tried. And here's what I'll try next. But if you just ask me a question, I'm not here to solve your problems. I can't get, I can't get my NPM to, to, to go out to the, to the production environment. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Who cares? Like, why are you asking me? Here's what I did. Here's the error I received. I Googled it. I saw three results. None of them worked. And, uh, and I'm still stuck here. Okay, I can work with that. Change to an older version of NPM. Mm -hmm. let's, uh, let's deploy with a different library. Let's use a different version of Ubuntu. Let's, uh, mm -hmm. let's consult the owners of the library. Let's, um, I don't know. That's what I got on that one. But like the, the options are very varied and different. And this is something that I love about 
being the tech lead is that you get to you get to just choose different parts of the stack to solve the problem because a lot of times the code is just broken right like it's possible there's just an error in the library or the li- or the or the uh, or the or the package version is mismatched with some other version that you're doing and it's just a complete shit show because that's just the that's just the reality so many of these libraries are just broken right so we have to think creatively and solve it and if you can't solve it from the first three results on Google, you might need a, a more creative solution rather than just banging your head against the wall. Mm-hmm. But the communication or, or part is important afterwards. Say it again. But the communication is very important to not cover it up, start communicating. And I like your point when you say that, um, you know, don't ask me a question, talk, tell me what you've done, because this is actually, um, you know, you stay basically in the flow. So you go to him. Or I hate questions. Go back and just, I hate questions. Don't. You know what? You know how you never ask a stupid question? Don't ask it. Don't ask questions. <laughs> right? I mean, that's that's what I think. So you you think a lot about platforms and platform as a service. I don't even know what that is. Tell me what a platform as a service is. Give us a definition here. So there are some definitions out there, actually. I give you mine. So um, yeah. I've talked about already about the app platform. Um, and a platform as a service for me is, let's say, um, in the perspective of a developer, it is a platform where I basically can work with my development skills to be able to deploy and run my application. So the DevOps idea, you know, I can, I build it, I run it, I run it on this on this platform. So this platform basically does provide me everything I need. So in larger companies, the platform as a service is the artifact, the result, the product of the platform engineering team. For smaller companies, it can be like something like the app platform, like Vercel aren't you, for so um, smaller Aren't you talking about platform as a service as uh, for in, in the context of the business of dev tools? Because don't you consider Salesforce a platform as a service? It is a platform as a service as well. Of course, I was in the context of software development and development. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I just wanted to make that clear for the audience that that platform as a service is kind of separate from dev tools. And I think you're, I think you're really focused in on dev tools and dev tooling because, you know, that's what you're living and breathing every day is the, is the mm-hmm. development life cycle, which is, which is fair. Um, but that's why I asked for your definition and not, you know, the, the broader definition. So in the context of dev tooling, platform as a service can be a, a, a system that's, that's letting us deploy our code and, and do, and do those things. Mm-hmm. So, um, Talk to me about solving burnout for uh, for with a platform as a service tool. Are you talking specifically about DigitalOcean again? I'm not. Maybe maybe if you want to touch on that briefly, I don't want to. I don't want to make this into a, too much of a mm-hmm. of a pitch. But if if you want to bring the platform as a service into the context mm-hmm. of uh, how we deploy, would, that would be that would be nice and helpful. Okay. Um, so developer burnout so when we take a look at the you know state of devops report this year uh, then then we lo- uh, then we read a lot about um, let's say burnout uh, which was you know related to devops or other companies telling that as well in my opinion um, let's say the platform maybe platform engineering platform as a service was not built in the idea or it was not fitting the idea of the developer. So when you force a developer, you know, to um, in his in his or her time frame, 
let's say, which is 40 hours a week. Let's take this as context. And you say uh, now, instead of only developing in that time, you need to have, uh, you need to do all the ops stuff as well, you know, but you don't have more time for that. You still have the same deadlines, but you suddenly need to, uh, you know, apply new, new skills you may not have at the moment. You know, for example, suddenly you you need to manage your Kubernetes cluster yourself to get some kind of pipelining there and so all that kind of stuff. And this, especially when you then go into new architectures like microservices and you, you're not proficient with that, you cannot concentrate on creating microservices because you are you have already problems with all the ops stuff around that. And this is where platforms help you um, and, yeah, basically help you to get this running without, um, you know, building up all these ops skills. So it basically takes away the burden of knowing ops um, more than an average level. So even with the basic software development skills, with a good platform as a service, you should be able to do end-to-end -end DevOps. This is what I think. Fair enough. Um, cool. We talk so... We wanted to talk a little bit about microservices as well. And you you think, or you're an advocate for having more microservices early stage in the uh, in the product lifecycle. Um, can you tell me why you think that? I think that we should deploy in a microservice, but you don't necessarily need to have like three different Docker containers to, uh, to have a solid architecture. It really depends on the app. But tell me, tell me your perspective on microservice deployment and why uh, why we should go with that. Most discussions about microservice versus monolith was um, they are always about the operational and technical aspects. And again, I'm okay. thinking from the business aspects and strategic aspect down to the tactical ones. And the reason being for that is um, my perspective is long term. You know, I'm 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 a long term business owner. Let's say a long term. Um, planner. So uh, what I do is I don't say, okay, this application is probably going into MVP and then uh, maybe it has some life after that. So I always thinking that, okay, this, this solution will live for a long time. And um, then I have, you know, I define my requirements and especially quality. So non-functional requirements. And one of them, my, my, my personal favorite is substitutability. It's not scalability. Like most people say it's substitutability. And the reason Ooh, I like that. Um, and the reason being is, for example, we had a product um, uh, right now in development for, for, for a larger client that uh, we were starting with. It does have an e-commerce aspect to it, but it's not an e-commerce platform. And um, there is a, let's say, a context about e-commerce shop, you know, and we decided to go with, uh, with an with a open source solution for that. And um, in, the, in the midst of the development, we realized that this will not work. You know, we saw that yeah. we needed to build too many stuff, too, many, too much stuff around that. And, it, and then we just basically um, wrote our own microservice, which substituted that one. And this is something you should do or should be able to do in five years as well. So this is my, 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 my favorite quality so that the, the application never, ever become a legacy application so this is the first one and um the another another very important uh, one second. let me yeah. let me just make a comment on that i love that substitute versus scalability because people focus too much on wanting to get to so many users given mm -hmm. a, a given architecture and you have this given architecture and you're just like okay like this has to work to a million but 
it's relatively easy to scale to scale them horizontally and vertically if you have the uh, code just working. Mm -hmm. But the thing that's more risky and worse is when the library breaks down and it doesn't it doesn't do what you're hoping for. If it's just not able to to fulfill the the duty that it was that it was granted, mm -hmm. right? So being able to architect by keeping libraries kind of siloed. So a lot of the things that I build require integrating two or three or four libraries. And you and we're not building that much code for for these businesses. What we're doing is we're integrating the libraries. And what you have to do is architect it so the libraries are segregated and like you said, separated, right? Mm -hmm. or, or substitutable. So that way you can break one out and put another one in. Or maybe break one out and put two in in its place or break one out and write it yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And especially when you get big and somebody says, hey, you're using this open source library for a commercial tool, then you have to go and build it yourself. So you better have made it so that it's substitutable, right? Exactly. So I love I love that attitude. I love that that idea. This is that's, basically that's the foundation of composable architecture or Mac architecture. Yeah, yeah composable. Yeah. That's, that's fine. But I'm a little bit afraid of just calling everything a microservice because you don't, for me, for me, a microservice is like a Docker deploy. It's like one Docker container. Mm -hmm. Do you have a different definition for microservice? What, what would you call as a microservice? So microservice for me is um, a standalone mini application, which fulfills one single service, um, does have its own persistence layer, even if it's the same, let's say, database server. But just Why does it need a persistence layer? Like you can architect, you can architect a monolith that that is deployed as a microservice mm -hmm. and have uh, a library that you created that has a that has a pip deploy and you have another thing that has a persistent layer and then you have another thing that's just a python class that has a bunch of things integrating it it, a third sorry it, sorry it doesn't need to right. have a persistent layer it, it, oh, does it doesn't have its own persistent so if it does have one it must be isolated from the others so this understood is, uh, understood yeah. okay so it yeah. is basically um you know loose coupled um, so let's say couple and cohesion so just follow those principles in that case yeah understood and, and what i really prefer as well on a microservice is uh, basically asynchronous communication so no direct api calls do it via message querying message bus kafka something like that so okay. this is, I love this is that. Some, um, something as well but um so the difference between let's say we could uh, for example uh, when we are in a pass again we can of course deploy several services which are actually several containers or services running next to each other communicating with the message bus um those you know could you don't really necessarily need to have the full qualification of a microservice to run them. It's already mm -hmm. better to, to, let's say, run them in separate services because of the, of the, of the substitutability. Because I don't yep. believe in discipline over time. So I never saw that. I know not, not even for me, you know, for myself. I don't trust myself in that. So I think that teams have fluctuations, cuts in budget, new leadership, uh, entirely new teams, outsourcing, insuring, all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, that, you know, your initial, um, let's say, architecture, uh, especially in a, for example, modular monolith, for example, will basically, uh, let's say it will be challenged over time, especially after the first month, let's say six to seven months, and it starts to be, let's say, 
coupled on on on, on spots you don't want to have coupling. And this is basically the beginning of the end, the beginning of the legacy dead end. And this is what yep. my because I the let's say in the, in the last fifteen years the biggest pain point and the greatest money dump I ever made was running into so many legacy dead ends one after another. And I personally never want to go back into that situation. It's a different story for a startup, which might get millions of funding afterwards and can rebuild everything. But most companies can't do that and should not. This is just the idea. Well, you don't want to raise funds. You want to raise funds and say, hey, (laughs) the money is to redo what I just did. That's just messed up. Like, why? What? Why do you want to migrate your solution? We're not doing that. One, one year after you just wrote it, none of so it none of my out. none of my customers have ever done that. They they raise a lot of money and then they they continue working on the the code base. It just doesn't make sense. Um, all right, I've seen a bunch of mangroves mangroves in my life, but you you mentioned something about a strangler fig approach, and the strangler fig looks really cool if you look at the photos of it. Um, but we're talking about legacy migrations and and taking pick picking apart an application piece by piece and kind of feature, but not even feature by feature, but like kind of API call by API call and replace it as you go. Can you talk to us a little bit about the strangler fig approach? Mm-hmm. The strangler fig approach is basically um, a migration approach to modernize your application somewhere else, which means it's very important to understand you basically strangler fig to another to another system. For example, you have a 10 years old monolith application, which is written in PHP, uh, running on an Apache server somewhere on some VMs, you know, which are in a data center, for example. And you just realized you're stagnant with that application. Um, you cannot create and you are not in progress anymore. So everyone is unhappy about and you want to do something about that, but you can't because maintainability is awful or not not happening. And um, so you start, for example, with a migration pattern of Strangler Fig, which was coined by Martin Fowler. And the idea is to start to slice something out of that um, monolith. And um, for example, a context, um, let's say in a messaging, for, for example, of your shop and you just put it somewhere else, for example, in a cloud-native environment, in another data center, multi-cloud, whatever you want. Just choose your target, where you want to go. Choose the, uh, let's say, the architecture in what you want to, to, to go, finally, eventually, and just take one piece of time and put that to somewhere else and federate it with some kind of proxy federator to one application and do that step-by-step in baby steps until the old application doesn't appear anymore. So basically you freeze your old application with only hot fixes, but no features anymore. And everything you do is done in the new environment until the point the migration is done and you only have the new tree, which basically uh, you know, took all the nutrients of the old one and uh, like a parasite and <laughs> it's a bad term for that. But in, in reality, you have then this new it's, application. No, I think that's the actual biological term is parasite, right? Because exactly. what... To, to make the to make the analogy a little bit clearer, you have a tree that exists, and then you have mm-hmm. another tree that kind of strangler fig comes onto one of the branches or onto one of the components of that tree, and then you and then it kind of shoots one root down and steals those nutrients, and then builds another root and another root, and it, it kind of engulfs the old tree and takes over it. Um, and like you said, just replaces the tree, right? So that's what we're talking about, legacy migration. We're taking a single, single uh, API call or single, single component by component and replacing one by one. Um, mm-hmm. 
but in our analogy or in in our uh, infrastructure compo- like uh, idea, it's not so much a parasite as it is a plan and mm-hmm. um, a uh, the way the way that you should be replacing things. I don't think I don't think there's really another way to do it and, and keep it keep it deployed at all times. It's just that's just the best way to to be doing it. So you, you get into progress right after you've started the legacy migrations yeah. again, which is good for business. So you, always prioritize, you always prioritize it correctly, right? So you're always going to take the, you're always going to take the API call that's, that's most pertinent to the novel feature, right? So you have a new feature that you're trying to build and you replace the API calls of the old things in the order in which it enables the newest feature that you need to build, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't just migrate the legacy stuff just to migrate it and say, Oh, now we're on the new version, right? Like you don't do that. You only do it if there's something that needs to be changed or there's something that's broken, right. Or something that needs to be added. So, um, cool. So those were all the technical topics I think we were going to talk about, but you, you had mentioned you do some, some traveling into the woods and, uh, you have this, uh, you're living the dream. You know, you ask people what they want and they're like, I want to live in the woods with, uh, no connectivity and, and just like enjoy enjoy the s'mores on the on the oven roast, um, but uh, you're using some Starlink and mm-hmm. apparently that's a SpaceX company which is kind of cool. So, uh, what kind of speeds do you get with Starlink? And and tell me about your cabin in the woods. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna come visit you um, soon. <laughs> so I'm living uh, next to the Black Forest in southern Germany, and uh, we oftentimes that. just uh, say with we have, with our camper van with my family wife and two kids, we often jump the bus actually and just you know, uh, drive into the woods. And sometimes okay. we just rent a, um, a cabin, sometimes several in a row. And, you know, uh, it's just traveling, you know, but I, I'm still working, you know, it's not not that heavy like, like in the office, but it's uh, just, you know, calming down, being in the green, being in the forest, being outside. And when we have those cabins, we didn't, you know, there's just electricity, um, some water, but everything else like heating you need to do by fire you know to chop some wood and all this kind of stuff and this is this is really what we like and next to it we basically put our uh, starlink because in those areas there's most of the time no good internet connection but i still want to be there i i'm really you know i i'm relying actually on those internet connections and with starlink you get really good uh, results you know when you have some free space above you and uh, that's that's quite interesting. So you can be basically outside. You can calm down, you know, especially when you have a lot of uh, pressure in your IT environment. Um, you know, I'm entrepreneur, tech lead, employee. I have so much going on. And uh, the forest does help me to get down. And this is why Absolutely. I really love to to sit in a cabin on, you know, sometimes outside with my MacBook and just working, having Starlink yeah. connecting me to all the others. Out there. So the Starlink is just a satellite dish, but it's mm-hmm. a square. And square, it doesn't right? even have concavity to it. It's just it's just shooting up, and then you have to you have to analyze the the uh, the sky or or your GPS location, and or or does it know where it is? And then it, just there are two modes actually. You have a residential mode where you need to set your location before you drive. Twenty minutes later, you are online at this location, or you have some kind of roaming mode. I never use that, but then you don't need to do that. But it's reduced uh, performance, reduced speeds, and. Um, when I use it, it's, it's something between 200 and 250 uh, megabits wow. download. Um, it's decent, 50, 50 up, 30 to 50 wow. up. Um, that's awesome. And, well, talk, uh, to me, talk to me about how you like orient the satellite, because that's interesting to me. 
Um, actually, you don't do that. Uh, you just uh, make sure it does have a solid stand. And uh, I think 45 degrees or something like that, um, and an angle free of view to the sky. And the rest is done by the dish itself. So it does uh, correct every time. And uh, it, it learns over the next eight hours where the satellites are. And it, it, the connection goes better and better and better. I have several screenshots of that. I can send them to you. Interesting. So it is motorized and it does automatically. Mm -hmm. It's a, like a bunch of stepper motors that decide where, where the satellite points. Yeah, exactly. And can you tell me what network that's on? Like what's the, because I don't think SpaceX owns all the satellites, right? I think it is like that. I can't so imagine they own every single satellite. They have I, several hundred satellites. I'm not not, not, really? not, not sure about no. the, the exact number, but they have this rows of satellites uh, Interesting. Um, running around there. And in Germany, it's quite good cover. I love that. That's really cool. Good stuff. Cool. So just give us um, give us a plug and then we'll sign off. Um, where can we find you online? Is LinkedIn the best place or maybe someplace else? Uh, LinkedIn, uh, of course, my name uh, and the Snackable CTO. It's basically one name um, on Substack, which is my newsletter where, where you get all the informations. Um, Snackable CTO. Can we, we can, we just, can we just Google that? Um, yeah, it's basically block.snackablecto.coach, which because awesome. I'm mentoring as well. Uh, other tech awesome. leads helping well, with those things we just talked about. Let's also spell your name for the for the listeners. So just spell your spell your last name for us. So Adrian Stanek, uh, Stanek, uh, S-T-A-N-E-K, actually. Okay, great. Just want to make sure everybody can find you. Cool. So uh, I have to say, don't subscribe. Stop listening to me. <laughs> and uh, go build your fucking company. Thank you, Adrian, for the time, and uh, we'll catch up. We'll catch up in a bit. Thank you for having me. Bye bye. For sure.